You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 42. This whole scenario is a anthropologist or, or linguist's dream to be able to to drop in and, and embed themselves with that. But at the same time, it would violate you know every, every code of ethics that goes along with those professions. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Uh, it's a good weekend. It's, it's, in fact, this is being recorded on Thanksgiving weekend, um, which for a quarter of the people outside the United States, big holiday here. Uh, so we got a four-day weekend. I'm joined by my co-host, as usual, Aaron. Aaron, how you doing? I am doing great. Uh, I, I'd like to say that I'm refreshed by the, the long break, but it's been its own kind of exhausting. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. A lot of traveling, right? I just came back on Metro North, which is just, uh, it's just, it's just gets slower and slower. You know, I mean, well, hold on, let me close this window. I don't know if people hear the, uh, the, when I moved to Weston, Connecticut in 1996, when I first met you, it was exactly an hour to take Metro North from Westport uh, to Grand Central to New York City. And now it's an hour and 14 minutes. So think about what kind of computer you had in 1996. <laughs> think about what kind of internet connection you had in 1996. It's, uh, you know, it's incredible. Well, and that, that train probably has the same seats it did in 1996. Yeah, well, they did replace the cars very recently, like uh, oh, a, a well, few years at, ago. At least there's that. Yeah, they replaced them very recently. But before that, it was like the cars from the 70s or the 60s or something like that. But... I read somewhere they have to go really slow because, like, the tracks are old. Don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's like, okay. So it's basically going to go to a, an hour 30, and uh, who knows. Um, well, yeah, not, not to get too inside baseball, yeah. but that's part of the whole problem with the, the value proposition of the Acela, uh, which, which for those of you who do not live in the Northeast, that's the high-speed uh, – well, high-ish speed. I'm making air, air quotes when I say high speed. The high speed train that runs. If you are uh, in Japan, you from would like laugh. Boston to DC. Yeah. But but yeah, because of of the limitation of the infrastructure, it, it means well instead of it, you know, being a a, a four hour trip. Uh, well, now we can do it in three hours and fifteen minutes, and you pay you know fifty to a hundred percent more for for that luxury. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, Eh, the subways here aren't getting any better either, but that's a whole other issue. I think that the, I don't, I actually have, we're not supposed to be covering this story today, so I don't have all the details, but my idea behind it, the thing yeah, that I heard is like. Don't quote me on those. Don't quote those, me on this. Uh, price yeah. po points or, or time values. Those were for illustrative purposes only. But I think the head of the MTA quit. That was Joe Loda, who actually ran for mayor here a few years back. And so the head of the MTA quit which is the, the organization that runs the New York City subway, which for some reason is controlled by the New York State. So <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we, we shall see. Anyway, let's uh, start off today with a story that I find really fascinating that's as far away as you can get from New York City uh, in the world. Uh, wouldn't you agree, Aaron? Both, both geographically and, and I suppose uh, in, in terms of culturally civilization uh, yes. levels of development yeah yeah in terms of levels of development yes i 
I think, right, uh, that assumes that New York City is the highest of levels of development. Like I said, though, in terms of trains, I don't know, I think certain places like Tokyo. But anyway, so we're talking about uh, the North Sentinel Island in India, which has been on the news recently. Um, well, you, they say it's in India, but it's really way, way, way off the coast of anywhere in India that you've probably heard of. So it's really out in the Indian Ocean. It's just, it's considered sovereign territory of India. But it's a very small island about the size of Manhattan, interestingly enough. Um, and it's been on the news recently because it has a group of people there who are basically hunter-gatherers. They've been there for tens of thousands of years. And an American guy, uh, a guy in his 20s, um, what was his name? Uh, his name was his last name was Chow. I don't know his first name. But anyway, he went there uh, presumably as a missionary um, and was killed by the islanders, and there's no way to get his body back, or, or that's a whole controversy about getting his body back. And then, of course, there's a lot of you know discussion of, well, he shouldn't have been there. What was he doing there? But let's um, let's actually back up before we talk about why it's on the news. This is this island has been fascinating to me for, and obviously the news story is very sad. Um, even you know there are a lot of people out there who say. You know, I, he shouldn't have been there. I have no sympathy for them, and that's all well and good. But you know, when something like this happens, it still is. It, it should shouldn't be. Uh, you know, you shouldn't shouldn't dance around. But I do want to have uh, an interesting. So why are you laughing at that, Aaron? I heard that. Uh, there's not. I, I'm just saying, like it's it's a tragic story. But let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the history of the island a little bit. And because for those of you who haven't been reading about this, it's it's really fascinating. Um, the North Sentinelese, it's probably the last hunter-gatherer society on Earth. Um, like I said, the island is about the size of Manhattan. Uh, there are genetic studies that say that they came there from Africa maybe 30,000 years ago. I, Wikipedia, for some reason, says 55,000 years ago, but somewhere in that range, way before the first cities, way before... You know, Indian civilization, Chinese civilization, the Fertile Crescent, the, the city of Ur, all the first civilizations that we know of, even like the crazy, you know, so basically it was a pre, pre-civilization pre world when they came over there. So I, I, I saw this in, in your notes, yeah. and, and now it, it just occurred to me, I'm, I'm very curious how they managed to get those genetic uh, samples for those those studies. I, I presume that nobody on the island was... Mailing in a you know ancestry dot com oh uh, sure spit vial no I to, don't to, yeah I I don't and, think that and, and we are not sponsored by ancestry dot no uh, but I don't I think I like them though <laughs> but I don't I don't think Aaron that they are that we've gotten a sample from anyone on the island but I think they're genetically related to people from the nearby islands who are not as isolated um, I will okay. double check that but I think that's the case. Um, it's interesting enough, their, their language is isolated. Um, researchers have, people who have dr driven by have heard a few words, but it's apparently, as far as we know, not similar to any other language on Earth. Uh, that's called a language isolate. Um, none of the words are known. None of the grammar is known. And they consciously refuse interaction with the outside world. And I'll talk about what happened in this particular case. Um, they don't always kill vis visitors. Sometimes they turn them away, which happened initially in this case. And for some reason, like in this case, they really don't like it when people come back to retrieve the bodies of people they've they've arrowed, people they've, they've killed who, who've been trespassing. Now, uh, it turns out from the article that 
Chow was allowed to approach the island twice. By the way, he was not allowed to be on that island. It's completely forbidden uh, to go there from the, you know, the Indian government forbids it, I assume. It sounded like he got a ride from some fishermen, and um, they probably shouldn't have taken him there. Uh, Yeah, it sounds like the fishermen are being charged not only with... uh... Uh, some sort of of culpability in his his death, but also for violating the the regulation that prohibits people from going to this island. Yeah, and it sounds like, by the way, from his writings, that he he knew what he was getting into. He um, he knew the risk, and in 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 some ways, it it might have been kind of a situation where it was a death wish. I don't want to, you know. I don't want to make any assumptions, but that could have been that could have been a possibility. Yeah, it's, it's tough to judge from the the limited you know excerpts of his his writings that were included in the the New York Times article, but it does give the impression of you know a little bit of a martyr complex. Yeah, but but it it's tough to tell how much of that is the New York Times choosing to to paint it a certain way, and how much of that is is the actual situation. Yeah, it could be. So uh, according to the article, uh, the uh, attempt, so he was allowed to approach the island twice. So basically, he took a kayak from these fishing boats. So the fishing boats wouldn't approach the islands. You know, they wouldn't get any closer to within range of the arrows, right? So they come up. They're like, this is as far as I'm going to take you. He goes and gets the kayak, and he takes the kayak to the island. And apparently the first time he approaches the island, um, they laugh at him, but they force him to turn around somehow. Uh, At first they laugh at him, then they become a little more, you know, aggressive. And... uh, they force him to turn around. Apparently, it says he was singing songs. Uh, maybe they didn't particularly like the music. I, uh, um, but okay, so they force him to turn around. He then makes a second attempt to uh, to land on the island. This time, they're really not happy. They break his kayak and they force him to swim back. And then he approaches the third time, and that's when he arrowed. That that's when he got um, got hit with the arrow. So. Um, it's not a situation. I, I looked into some of the history of the island. There are situations where they have uh, killed people on site like decades ago. Um, it's, and we can only speculate, but it's actually really fun to speculate like what their, what their policy might be. Um, it sounds like you know, their policy now at least is not to shoot people on site, but um, to at least give them a chance to escape. Maybe they will shoot on site if, they, if they're uh, afraid of something happening. Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating. Uh, what what exactly is their 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 code of conduct in terms of of how they react to outsiders? Um, because there's also the recorded case uh, from from several years back of uh, them. Uh, I don't know if they actually shot arrows at a passing helicopter or if or if they uh, just yeah the, the helicopter gestured menacingly. But the, he- the but helicopter a, was a, trying to retrieve bodies, which they wouldn't apparently got one, but not the other. So yeah, so they they clearly have some some deep seated uh, you know kind of cultural uh, institutional knowledge about contact with outsiders being bad. Um, it would be very interesting to find out what that originates from, uh, right? But with, without uh, breaking the the you know the you could say it the freezing contact. Uh, yeah. it, it it's virtually impossible Star, to make that determination. Star Trek's prime directive type of an issue, right? Yeah, exactly. The when when is it okay to to not not only to reach out and, and communicate with them, but also you know provide them with 
things that are that are more advanced than their current technology. Yeah, some level. some people have tried to offer them food. Uh, they they turn that down. I, I and you know one of the really interesting things that we can learn from this tribe is well, first of all, it's kind of like going into an alien civilization. Like if you go to another planet that has life, it sort of answers the question of does life have to look like it does here? Similarly, here, this is a completely different language from anything on Earth. Could you have a language that looks very different? Or does it look, are there similarities to languages that exist on Earth? So a lot can be learned about language. I'm also very curious to know what their, you know, what it is that they know. Uh, it sounds like they know a lot. I'm sure they know everything there is to know about every single you know, plant and animal that lives on the island. Um, and I bet they know a fair amount of history about their people and about outsiders coming in. Um, but they're, they're the kind of story that they tell themselves about what they're actually doing, that would be very fascinating to learn. Yeah, and, and you'd mentioned that, that this is uh, perhaps the last or, or the only uh, group of this level of isolation. And, and I don't know how how it compares to this this group on the the North Sentinel Island, but you do occasionally hear about you know first contact being made with uh, a tribe in the Amazon that's been isolated sure. for and, yeah. and 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 perhaps the, the the difference there is is that uh, they haven't been isolated for for anywhere near the you know thirty or fifty thousand year period. Yeah. Um. But but again, it, this this whole scenario is is. A, a anthropologist or, or linguist dream to be able to to drop in and and embed themselves with that um and but at the same time it it very much uh from my understanding would violate you know every, every code of ethics that goes along with those those professions yeah so we'll talk about that for um we'll talk about that uh, uh those possibilities in a little bit um first so i did read this new york times article about how they're trying to uh, possibly retrieve the body it looks like it's not going to it's probably not going to happen. Uh, some some police came by, you know, outside the range of arrows and kind of used binoculars to examine the shore. Apparently, the uh, the people there were uh, the Sentinelese were guarding the body, or at least what they think was the body, um, which they apparently buried. Uh, they don't believe that they practice cannibalism or anything like that, um, but they won't let the police there. Um, it's it's an interesting you know, reading the comments in the New York Times, and you think you know the New York Times actually picks which comments get upvoted, but in, so you'd think it would have a much higher caliber than just any random place in the internet. But it, there really are certain things there that make me sad. So first of all, there's a lot of taking what this individual did and um, sort of grafting it on as representing all of us in Western civilization. So like, you know, one of the comments is, we never learn, do we? Leave these people alone. It's like, excuse me, we? You know, and another person, leave these islanders alone. We are the barbarians. There tends to be like a, I don't know, it's it's almost like the the noble savage myth is kind of still in the, uh, is still in the ethos and like people are, People are just getting really weird with some of these comments. Uh, haven't you? Have you noticed I, that? I agree. I think there's a, a certain element of that, but but I think there also is some truth to um, this the stereotype of kind of the ugly American that that we feel like it's our right to go anywhere in the world and and we expect to be treated a certain way. And in some cases, that that just doesn't fly. And and this is 
perhaps an extreme example of that that uh, and, and, well, and actually, I think is, it's a little bit different because he kind of knew what he was getting into. This is it, not. It, it doesn't sound like he wandered yeah. in there unawares. But this is not a I guy with he... a Yankees sweatshirt going to France, <laughs> being like, you know, how come they won't speak to me in English? They know English. You know, <laughs> this is very different than that. I, I think I think it's it's bringing some of that baggage with it, though, for sure. Sure, sure. Um, I do think. I mean. Look, I agree with people that there's there's probably nothing we can do. He actually, in his writing, said, don't retrieve my body. So he kind of knew what was going to happen. and um, or, but, or at least what could happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I don't go as far. I, I do go as far as saying he never should have been there. He should have been stopped. Um, it wasn't right for him to go in there. I, I stop short of people saying, you know, he deserved what he got. You know, that's a little bit, you know, I, I don't think that um, I it's high bar for me for to say people like deserve to be killed. Mm. But I, people are very quick to say that in some of these situations, which I find a little off putting. Um, well, so the, the other piece of this, which you, you mentioned at the very beginning, that that this is technically under uh, under the Indian government's. Uh, sovereignty uh that's probably not the right term for it but but they can they are are widely perceived to have control over this territory even though it is very much on the far reaches of of their territory right however uh since they can't communicate with the people there uh they don't have a physical presence on the island right uh whether whether it is enshrined in the laws or not they are de facto treating this as a independent sovereign nation perhaps within their territorial bounds um not entirely unlike how how some uh some nations treat uh certain indigenous peoples so like in the u.s we have uh certain tribal lands reservations where there's a a native government that exists there that is uh it's Subject to some parts of of U.S. federal law, but but in some senses it is completely independent and self governing. Sure, uh, and but so they so, they kind so of treat it that way. Yeah. That that what happens on the island is under the island's control. They they have rules saying that you you know you can't go there, and they try to enforce that to their best of their ability. But they're not about to go onto the island and start collecting taxes. And similarly, I don't think they're about to go onto the island and uh, round up the likely suspects and bring them into an Indian court to put them. Yeah, on Yeah, even though they they technically say they have the right to do that i mean they can you know what are they going to do are they going to send in the military i have no um look if they were going to send in the military or even like a very strong police force and they were like get the body at all costs i'm sure they could do that but they would they would wipe out this civilization um if you ask some general hey could you come up with a plan to retrieve this body and round up the suspects without uh, with doing minimal the the minimal amount of of collateral damage, you know, make sure you leave them intact. I'm sure that general would come up with a plan. Maybe they could do something with rubber bullets. Maybe they can keep them occupied with an attack elsewhere. But it it would be a plan that could go wrong so easily, and uh, it, it's just. It's not worth doing. It'd be so expensive. It's just not worth doing. But more importantly, you would just wipe out this, um, this like kind of fossil of human history. I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't say keep them in there like a zoo if they don't want to be there. But clearly, they want to be there. So there's not much you can do. 
Yeah, it's it's a tricky question. How how do we respect their wishes but not uh, kind of fetishize their their isolation at the same time? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I, I felt like some people in the comments in the New York Times were, well, especially that guy that like, you know, we are the barbarians. They are, you don't know anything about them, you know? But I, I mean, it's, uh, it's what are you going to say? Um, okay, so here's some interesting thought experiments on how to make contact with these. I'm going to put some ethical considerations aside or we could talk about the ethical considerations, but maybe I could preface this by saying, I'm not actually doing any of these things. I'm not actually, you know, <laughs> this is all theoretical. And um, so you can't yell at me for doing anything theoretical. So what if someone sends an insect drone to the island that can record their conversations without them knowing about it? And then we can study their language. Um, so you see what I mean? Like you go into one of these far boats, you send these uh, insect drones in, and you could start recording things. And then, of course, um, I'd have no ethical problem with just putting it on a reality TV show once we could do the real-time translations. Come on, that would be so much fun. It, it would certainly make for some fascinating you know, PhD-level research. Um, and, and perhaps eventually, uh, I mean, you, you could at least get a documentary out of it for sure. Yeah. Uh, probably, a, a blockbuster feature film, uh, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe that could go the reality TV route as well. Um, I bet the stuff they talk about is the same stuff that, that all people <laughs> talk about. They're like, so-and-so isn't doing his job very well today. Well, yeah, hum- so humans are humans, no matter when we, uh, isolated yeah. ourselves. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing that you can learn about this. Um, okay, so then my other idea, which maybe is bordering on perhaps more ethical, is can you airdrop some kind of communications device? Again, one of the problems with actually going to the island and making contact, aside from the fact that you're going to be killed, is that you are introducing a ton of diseases to them, um, which they could be getting from this guy, which could could end up wiping them out because they really can't handle like they could have a, a, a flu or, or smallpox or whatever could just wipe them out um, or, or any type uh, or, of disease or like vice that. versa. I yeah. mean, we we assume that it's going to be kind of a the you know, Spaniards coming to America situation. Yeah. Uh, but but it could very well be that they have some, you know, unique strain of, of bacteria or, or some virus that they're they're carriers of from 30,000 years ago that we on the mainland have no exposure to in, in, you know, yeah. recent evolutionary, not evolutionary, but, you know, recent, uh, kind of viral history. It does. It seems less likely, but I'm sure that's, that's possible. I don't know why it seems less likely. I think it's just because, you know, the, we come into contact with so much and our bodies and our immune systems kind of react to that in certain ways, um, that we have kind of a wide ver- a variety of, of defense mechanisms that they might not have. Um, I'm sort of talking, I'm not really talking in a position of, of too much knowledge here, so I probably should shut up, but <laughs> that's just what I think. But Well, there's, there's an interesting discussion to be made there about uh, diseases of yesteryear, which have been largely wiped out, but which if they came back because modern people don't have exposure and antibodies to it could be devastating but i certainly haven't done my homework on that one yeah all right so what about airdropping a communications device that they can use or choose not to use something that would be like hard to destroy but a lot easier to i think that humans are naturally curious so i don't think they would just destroy i don't think it's like a 
I don't think it's like a North Korean situation where the government tells them, you know, anything that's airdrops to you is just completely poisonous. I don't think they, I actually don't think they believe that in all likelihood. I, I, we, we have no idea. We don't know what they believe. But then to try to, you know, communicate with them remotely in some way and try to, you know, over time, you know, figure out how to speak a common language. Um, I thought the ethical question here is interesting because there are people who think that, like, you know, any sort of outside, bringing them any sort of outside information is aggression. On the other hand, if you can coordinate some sort of uh, situation where they can be like, you know, hey, we have some people approaching the island we don't want. You, you've got to, you, we're going to kill them, but you, 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 can, uh, you can get rid of them instead uh, or, or prevent them from doing that instead, uh, then, then maybe it could, could be valuable in that way. Um, or could prevent, you know, they some way for them to report outsiders coming in. I, I think the the challenge there is that to to get to that point, you need to get over all of those first contact yeah. language issues. That that would be a excellent uh, exercise in in how we might deal with uh, a you know encountering intelligent life from another another planet in the it future. almost seems like we um, should do that in order to have those notes to prepare for that situation but but again it's once once the die is cast it's very difficult to undo that you can't you can't roll back the clock once you've exposed them to that it, it, particularly if you realize that well maybe we shouldn't have done it that way right it, now now it's too late yeah yeah um very tough issues. If you have uh, any comments on this, we'd like to read them, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Um, all right, we have a few other things to, to talk about today. Um, I I don't think we're ready to really do a follow-up on the sabbatical yet, are we? Are you going to grill me on that at some point, or, or what? I, I think we can go into uh, much more detail in a, in a future discussion, okay. but but maybe kind of a, a highlights uh, reel of... of any any big developments and, and kind of a teaser of, of what we might talk about when we go into it in more detail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a few things I found. First of all, getting things done is hard, even when you don't have work. Um, I felt extremely productive during my six weeks, but even then I got done about half of what was on my list, but my list was pretty huge. Um, so in terms of the books that I read, I got, you know, I definitely read a full few full books on blockchain, so I really feel like I have a strong understanding of that. I didn't get into my deep learning book, interestingly enough, so I, I probably should circle back on that one. Um, I mentioned that secret database project, which database makes it sound so boring. That is actually <laughs> coming along nicely. That's really fascinating. And so I'm going to start, um, I don't know, my hope is by the end of the year to start sending it out to certain friends and trusted people. And then maybe a few months after that, I'll sort of talk about it on the podcast. Um, I did look into some other projects, but I'm like, you know what? This project that I'm working on, this main one that I just mentioned, is sort of going to form the basis of everything else that I want to do. So why don't I just focus on that? Um, you know, for example, the subjective tagging uh, project, which I... I wrote a little document on how I'm going to do it. So subjective tagging, if I just want to remind people, was just a, new, a different way of moderating content. Do you remember this, Aaron, at all? Yeah, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, the subjective tagging stuff was, um, was more of just like, how can we moderate 
content online sub and but subjectively so that way if you're in a minority you have a minority belief you're not screwed over by the algorithm and so i felt like i think my contribution there this um this over the break was to just think about it a lot and again i didn't work on it i didn't actually come up with any code or any prototypes but i, I thought about you know what are the and, and it's a good what are the properties that a good moderation system or a good tagging system online should have. So one of them, for example, is that if you're in a, if you're in a, a group with minority beliefs, then you shouldn't be overwhelmed by the majority vote. And another one, for example, is if you're just not someone who votes a lot on you know, how content gets tagged and how content gets moderated, then you shouldn't be screwed over by not voting. You should, um, you know, we should still kind of you know, it should still kind of work, even if the majority of the people don't participate in the content pr production that much. So that's, I know that's kind of high level. I don't know if you have any questions about that. Maybe we could skip over that. that that's sort of glossing over it, so I don't want to do too much. But um, but that's sort of what I thought about. Maybe I'll, I'll release the document that I put out at some point. Um, and then third, the podcast projects. Obviously, I've mentioned on the show, localmaxradio.com. That's... Uh, that's the new website coming along really well. I got some new guests. I wanted to get some bigger guests, and I got some pretty good guests with uh, recently Charlie Oliver and uh, David Petruja, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, I've got a few bigger ones coming in the future. But, uh, you know, I also realize it's a lot easier to just go after people like Charlie and David and other people who just have interesting things to say. I think that's uh, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, ch chasing the uh, you know number of followers someone has uh, can can be more hassle than it's worth. Yeah, yeah, um, that's what if, I found. If you if you stick to people who who you are confident will generate you know interesting discussion, then then that that'll lead you know maybe maybe it won't lead to more listeners, but it'll at least lead to uh, good material. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Do you have any more questions on that, or do you want to just follow up with about? Um, well, I want to follow up with a couple of things on what David Petruja said last week. But yeah, uh, I guess is it, it sounds like the the uh, the kind of secret database project is is going to be the the big uh, product growing out of, of of this work, but that's not going to be you know ready ready for for primetime release anytime soon yeah uh is is there anything um anything coming in the next you know couple of weeks or couple of months that that's kind of growing out of the the uh the sabbatical that we should be looking for um obviously you, no. you already re yeah. you know launched the website that was the big the big you know con consumer side product we saw uh during the sabbatical yeah no um, but is there anything else yeah uh you know, on on the roadmap for the the near future. Nothing in the next few weeks. Um, I I just want to. I uh, yeah. <laughs> the answer is nothing in the next few weeks. But this this project that I'm working on, I think, is pretty big, and I'm gonna try to grow it. You know, over the course of years. So it's um, it'll be pretty exciting. I, I don't have anything awesome. in the next couple of weeks. Um, hopefully, just to improve the podcast more and more. Well, and the next couple of weeks are a crazy time of year, yeah. at least here in the U.S. and and in, I, I'd say probably most of our listening. Uh, oh yeah, we're getting into the holiday season. community yeah. as as we we lead into New Year's, if nothing else, but yeah. but also uh, you know the 
the Hanukkah is coming up very soon. Oh, yeah. Tons and, of parties on and that. And then we get into the full swing of, of Christmas and end. New Year's. And... It doesn't end because you got, um, what, uh, Thanksgiving and then next just happened. Next week's is Hanukkah, then all right into the Christmas and New Year's. So uh, there's always going to be, uh, even if you don't celebrate all those holidays, there's always parties that you have to go to. <laughs> Not have to, but you know. <laughs> Who's going to turn down a, a latke? Come on. Um, well, so are are there any Black Friday deals uh, on this podcast? I guess it's not Black Friday anymore. No, but yeah, uh, it won't be Black Friday. You, you, you can listen to this podcast a second I time. Did buy, no I did charge. buy a new jacket today, so that was fun. Um, we'll we'll see if I can go skiing in it. <laughs> okay, so take away from David's um, David Petruja, who I had on last week, and that was the first time I did an interview that was sort of outside. Well, it was definitely technology-related, and it definitely fits in with what we've talked about before. But I think I'm going to do this more and more where I have someone in sort of a different field come in and weigh in on something that's tangentially related to some of the issues that we've been discussing. Because, hey, that's the point of the local maximum, right? You want to sort of get out of your routine, and this is a good way to do that. So, Aaron, did you listen to the episode with David Petruja? I did. It, it was it was fascinating. Yeah, I uh, I got some really good response from that. And not only that, but on the day I released it, it was the highest download. I don't think it was my highest download day ever, but it was the highest download for a single episode ever on the day after its launch. So that was pretty big. People are definitely interested in that. Um, I think people are just interested in, in the presidents. They're interested in politics. They're interested in personalities. Um, one of the takes... And so... I tend to have these conversations and I listen to it again and then I start to think about it because you hear things that you didn't hear the first time when you were giving the interview. And so I started thinking about, you know, one interesting question is why do people always assume that we're at the end of history? Because you see, um, you know, as David said, every 20 years, the whole game of um, political campaigns changes because of communication technology and just because of social trends. You had, what do you say, vaudeville uh, acts and, <laughs> and phonographs and radio and television, black and white television, color television. You had a movie star. You had MTV. You had, um, and, and, and now you have social media. And I feel like so many people who are um, commenting on technology and pol- politics, particularly at the intersection, assume that this is the way it will always be, and we have to take it in, especially what the last couple cycles were, this is the way it will always be, and we have to react to it that way. Now, in some ways, you know, the TV era was long, but if someone said in 1960, well, the TV era is going to be long, we should sort of plan for that, you don't really know, uh, you know, what the TV era is going to look like in 1990. So what I, I, this is one of those things when I come in, I'm very skeptical of people saying, hey, we need to break up the tech giants. We need to regulate them now. And even like now you have uh, Tucker Carl- Carlson, who's supposed to be, you know, a conservative um, TV host who's, who's saying these things. You know, people assume we need net neutrality because of, and I might get in trouble for saying this because my company is very involved in stopping, in, uh, in making net <laughs> neutrality happen. But I just think that, you know, people assume that, oh, whatever the internet looks like now, that's the way it's going to look like forever. And so we need to freeze it into place as to what we have now. And I just think that's crazy. 
Yeah, there's 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 a lot going on there. Um, uh, and and actually, w- one of your comments about the 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 length of you know the TV age or the internet age, uh, it made me think. Well, the of internet I'm, age I'm forg- will be all century, of course, but it will just be so different. <laughs> well, I'm forgetting the name of of the the law, but uh, we we discussed it in a previous episode. The uh, the the method of estimation that if, if something has been around oh, for Lindy's, you know, X number of years, yes. it will probably be around for that many more. Yeah. That's uh, Lindy's law. Yeah. So, and, and that applying that to this problem uh, may or may not give you uh, sufficient mileage that. It's, well, yeah. It's, uh, it's like things that have been here for five years. You're kind of like, uh, it's like, well, it, it'll anything that only started in the last five years, it'll, it could be frozen into place, but it'll be very different in the next five years. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I guess there's a big argument to be made that, that perhaps, you know, breaking up the, you know, taking antitrust measures makes sense because it's, if, if the government hadn't stepped in and broken up, you know, what is it? Standard oil and American steel. Uh, it, it's not like a new technology came around immediately that, that broke their, their stranglehold on the market. It was, that happened eventually. Uh, but how, how long are you willing to wait for that? Uh, then again, I, is the yeah. government stepping in and breaking it up really solving that problem, or is it just creating a whole other set? No, of I problems? mean in those cases, um, well, in those cases, there was even less of a justification because steel was just getting better and better every year. For example, the, you, you could look at the stats like the price is just going down every year, and it's like that's not what you know a monopolist is supposed to be doing. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in this case, I mean, I do argue that some of these services are actually getting worse and worse every year. But I, I think that this is just part of the natural evolution of the internet, and that uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the best engineers are now starting to work on the next generation. While the engineers, not all of them, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, paint with too broad a brush. But like, I feel like a lot of the people in these companies are starting to phone it in, at least a much much higher percentage than than once were. Because think about it, it's just like, hey, this is just a revenue generating cash cow. We just want to think in those terms and keep it going. You know, what type of person is going to work there? This is somebody who it's just a job. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they all have kind of their their skunks work esque, uh, you know, high tech cutting edge research groups, but they they also have um, it, it's uh, to to borrow a term from the military industrial complex. It's it's becoming a, a very high uh, or yeah, very high tooth to tail ratio, um, uh, and that that's that's a measurement of, of how many, you know, support personnel do you have in a military engagement for, for each person actually on the front lines doing the fighting. Uh, and, and in the U S military, I, depending on, on what engagement you're in, that's, that's in the, the high double to perhaps low triple digits. Uh, and, and I think we're starting to see that at these companies that the people doing cutting edge research are becoming a smaller and smaller percentage while those who are keeping the gears of, of, you know, capitalism turning and, and squeezing every last bit of revenue out of out of the the advertising engine or or whatnot are a much larger portion of the the corporate bulk. Yeah, yeah. All right. So anything that that's not really relevant, I, I sort of took an immediate turn away from what I talked about with David <laughs> Petruja. But did you have any other anything else in particular to comment on that? Was there anything in there that surprised you? Uh, I guess I think part of 
part of my and 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 I I also listened to some of his other discussions that that you'd pointed me to um, with some other folks yeah. uh, that that maybe went into a little bit more detail on on Teddy Roosevelt as well. But um, looking back at some of these characters, uh, it's I guess I I very much kind of romanticized or idealized some of these uh, turn of the century presidents and not necessarily. Uh, I didn't have a full awareness of of really what their platform is, what they actually did, other than some of the big broad stroke things, and and you know what they really stood for, um, and and so it's it's interesting to try and understand that on on a level that I think I understand where you know our our current you know recent presidents have stood, um, that there there are a lot of things that you don't necessarily associate with a, a Teddy Roosevelt or or with a with an FDR or. Hmm. Uh, I, I know you mentioned uh, your your favorite president Wilson oh, uh, in there. Uh, <laughs> you know th- things things that they did and that they stood for that aren't necessarily what they're remembered for. But but if you were living through that era, would have very much formed your your perception of them. Hmm. Well, can you give an example? Uh, I so when I envision Teddy Roosevelt, I, I think of you know he's he's a man's man. He was a cowboy. He yeah. he fought on San Juan Hill, oh, you know, sure. with the Rough Riders, yeah. and and you know the 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 great story about how he was uh, shot by an assassination attempt, and then proceeded to to give a, a yeah. campaign speech. Oh, that's true. Was it, David talks. Maybe it wasn't about a campaign. Yeah, came, yeah, it was. Campaign yeah, speech, I think but, so. But he gave right. a long speech after that. And, but but also, and and you think, I guess. You think of him as a, a very you know kind of staunch conservative. Um, I mean, he he was the the police commissioner of New York City, so yeah. you would expect he was very much a, a you know uh, meat and potatoes law and order, law and order uh, yeah. politician. Uh, but but he was in some ways very progressive, and yeah. and that doesn't necessarily trickle through the the historical uh, narrative about. Well, him. it's interesting because I went to um, I went to David's talk at the New York Public Library before doing the interview. And he spoke about when people ask him, you know, what is, where does Teddy Roosevelt fit? And I hope I'm not mangling this because they didn't say use these exact words, but he asked like, where does Teddy Roosevelt fit on the political spectrum? It's like, well, it depends where in his life, because Hmm. he was pretty conservative, you know, say in the 1890s. um, But actually he moved further and further left throughout his life um, until, you know, forming that bull moose party. So um, actually, he, he changed quite a bit, uh, but he he definitely retains that kind of, you know, law and order um, strand of progressivism um, versus the more uh, I don't know uh, idealistic version of you know say yeah. Woodrow Wilson. Well, and and he did ha- very much have at, at least with a maybe not with America as a whole, but with a large chunk of it, a cult of personality, which I think very much does come through. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, I guess it's hard to compare that to, I mean, it, how does how does that compare to, to Obama's, uh, you know, the, yep. the, there's a, a large portion of, of the U.S. population that, that, that did and still do, does adore him. And it's tough to, to draw a parallel and say, well, is, is that on the same level of, of what Teddy Roosevelt was was like or or is are we talking apples to oranges i mean i <laughs> i can compare him to donald trump actually uh well, i mean think yeah. think about it uh a republican who is you know kind of not a real republican but still gets the other side so angry uh 
and is, you know, willing to stab the party in the back, maybe. Like, you know, I could see Trump. Well, I mean, he's a little bit old at this point, but so like it, it probably wouldn't happen, you know, 15, 20 years down the road. Like um, what, what I think it was 10 years later when he did the bull moose party. Yeah. Um, so but uh, well, because he was like, at, at least at that time, he was a I, be, I believe the youngest person to right. ascend to the right, office. But think about it. Like I could see Trump splitting the Republican Party into like a new populist party. Right? Well, I mean, everybody's been been saying for the last three, three yeah. and a half years that he's going to fracture and shatter the Republican Party and it'll be unrecognizable afterwards. And yeah. I, I don't know that that's happened or if it's actually going to, but it's still a distinct possibility. Right, right. Um, yeah. And Teddy and also like, you know, on on racial issues, none of these people were good back then. And that's sort of the thing that we mm. really care about now. But and, hey, Teddy Roosevelt, as he went more and more left, he actually got worse and worse on these issues uh, because, well, because it kept burning him. It was the politically correct thing to do was to be kind of racist back then. In 1901, he uh, he invited the first African-American to dine at the White House. And and that was uh, Booker T. Washington. Um, and, you know, he thought it was the right thing to do. But the media just went absolutely ballistic. And it's interesting. And, and that's that's not surprising, given that he he grew up in a, a you know, a New York family oh, yeah. uh, and, and very much was uh, I presume he was Ivy League. I don't know. Uh, he, he, he must have been. Uh, <laughs> But but so he's, he, he's a Roosevelt he family, up, yeah. That's not he. He came up in that kind of a, yeah. uh, of, of an environment. But then when you go to operate on the national political scale, or national, yeah, national political scene, uh, that that kind of stuff doesn't play very well necessarily with uh, a large chunk of of America at that point. No, yeah, and it's interesting to read some of the quotes from these newspapers because it again, uh, this is something that because I found jar. I, I talked about things where. Uh, for example, uh, you know, JFK's interview on Jack Parr, where there was a part of it that was so different and a part of it that was so familiar, where you're like, wow, the media back then, the way they're so, you know, they're so racist and there's and is just so, <laughs> um, you know, is just so out of the league of anything that's beyond a possibility now. But but the media going ballistic and the way they're going ballistic <laughs> that actually looks very familiar. <laughs> so I, I I'd be very curious to see if if when the next president uh, takes office, yeah. If I, I also want to end that story because the, the story doesn't end well. Did. Because as as he goes back, because as he said, as as David said, you know when he 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 broke off the Republican Party and created this Progressive Party, it was like then it by at that point that's like twelve years later that's a whites only party. He basically got took the lesson. You know, and 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 um, he 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 took the lesson from that, and unfortunately, it was, you know, it 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 was not in the right direction, which is kind mm. of uh, kind of interesting to learn. Oh yeah, I I was just saying it'll it'll be interesting to see that the the media has taken kind of a hard turn in how they treat the presidency. Yeah, uh, and it'll be it'll be very interesting to see if they. Uh, course correct after the the trump administration or or if we've entered a new normal there um yeah you know is 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 this specific to him or has he uh irreparably changed for for better or for worse uh the office of the presidency and its relationship to the the 
news and entertainment. That's interesting. I I think that there is some kind of continuity, actually, I would argue. Um, I know you think it just got, it, it maybe got well, yeah, so he, crazy. He, he hasn't done this alone, yeah. but he certainly, uh, he either accelerated or made a sharp turn uh, in, in the path. Yeah. Depending on how you look at it. I mean, I, know, I, I feel like there's a continuity between the way the media was treating George Bush in 2008, jumping ahead to treating Trump. Now, actually, I think a lot of the uh, criticisms of George Bush are, are valid. So I'm not saying whether the criticisms are valid or not. I'm just saying, like, the way the media treated these two guys, I kind of see it as they're just, you know, their machine. The media is kind of building a better and better machine against the Republicans over time. It's kind of crazy to watch. I, I don't know if I, I totally agree with this statement, no? but I've heard people people make the comment that uh, at least when there's a Republican in the office, the media does their job. Uh, that that when there's a Democrat that. in the office, they're they're too busy fawning over them to to actually uh, you know report on the issues in a thorough and and transparent manner. Yeah, uh, I, I I think that's perhaps uh, hyperbole, but but it certainly does feel that that there's much more of a willingness to to dig deep and and get down in the dirt and and look for for all the skeletons in the closet yeah uh when i want when there's an r after the the office yeah i want something in between for for all the presidents i want them to to dig deep i want them to find the skeletons in the closet i don't like this kind of um hit and run like oh we're just gonna write a headline that looks way worse than it is or there's an investigation (laughs) ongoing and we're just gonna make assumptions about which way it's gonna go um it uh, I mean, there, there's got to be. Why is there no guidebooks for, for like an ethical reporting of political leaders in a free society? I, uh, I, I don't know. Also, well, tangentially related to that, I'm, I'm going to throw out a uh, an unsolicited podcast recommendation. Okay. Um, Slow burn. Uh, I have not listened to season two yet, but season one is is an in depth dissection of of the uh, the Watergate scandal. Hmm. And my my understanding of Watergate before listening to this was was very much the classic, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, the the reporters and Deep Throat, and they cracked the case and and they they broke it wide open and then printed the story and that was that and then he was impeached and he resigned. Yeah. Uh, but but there's a lot more going on there and it's a lot more complicated and and it didn't happen nearly that quickly. That was that was just one chapter in in a long drawn out very complex story, uh, and it's it's fascinating to to not only find out how how that all happened uh per, perhaps because it has implications on uh what what might occur in the uh in the the new congress uh but also what pieces of that story uh were were kind of ingrained in our national uh conscience in in our our understanding of of the history of what watergate is and what pieces just disappeared onto the cutting room floor and and only people who are super into you know conspiracies or or super history nerds about Watergate uh, actually know those details. Mm, fascinating. Even even people who lived through it who yeah. who don't necessarily uh, recall or or did not know at the time some of those details. Sure, sure. All right, I will. I'll look that up, or you can send it to me. I'll put it on the show notes page. Um, let's uh, we're short on time. Let's. Uh, Let's finish up with uh, an email that was sent to me that was very interesting. It was in response to the Google Graveyard 
episode that we did a while back. I believe that was episode 36 about Google Plus being shut down. Uh, This is an email from Jacob. Jacob writes, G Plus was mostly used as a way for people to get followers like Twitter. For that, the circle model was terrible. If you shared a message with a given circle, that message was then private and thus was not visible to potential future followers, not visible in your public feed. The circle model was in general confusing and did not really support the most common use cases for social media. Uh, Instead, a user should have been able to create channels on specific topics so followers could self-segregate into these channels and only see the posts they were interested in. That means that the follower would filter the message, what messages to see via what channels they subscribe to. The circle model had the sender of a post decide who sees it, not the receiver. Wrong model, except for private messages, but that was not what it was used for. So very interesting message, Jacob. Um, so let's talk about the circle model in Google+, which they came, which I assume they were thinking about for a few years before that. So they were probably thinking about in 2009, 2010. I remember some of the research reading into 2010, and they finally came out with this, I believe, in 2012, Google+. Plus. And the idea was that circles would represent your different friend groups. So they were trying to copy Facebook, not Twitter. And the biggest complaint with Facebook at the time, I mean, think about it. If you're in Zuckerberg's generation, that would be us. We're about the same age as him. Uh, By the time you get to 2010, right, you have your high school friends are now on. It started with your college friends. Then your high school friends went on it. Then now you're connecting with your work friends on it. Now, oh, all of a sudden, your parents are on it too. And so you start thinking, well, the things that I used to share with uh, my college friends are not necessarily I want to share with that entire group of people. And then you also have specific groups of college friends. Like I know I had the Yale radio group. I had the people in my dorm in Silliman College. I had uh, the, uh, the sketch comedy group. So there's, I have the computer science uh, group. So there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different um, channels. And so that was a big concern. And Facebook, Facebook never solved that problem, by the way. And if I remember correctly, in in the early days, at least, there, the granularity on the settings was, was kind of, you could set something to be, you know, visible to only me, to only my friends, to friends of friends, or to everybody, or or something along those lines. I think that came... I don't know if that was the was, time. Was that even later? That, that could have been late. I mean, it was definitely not early Facebook. I mean, early, well, early Facebook didn't really have those types of messages yet. I mean, they were just starting to experiment with the kind of feed thing, I think, in 08, somewhere yeah, around. Yeah, well, I, I, I may be confusing uh, some of your profile details yeah. with, with oh, the yeah, permissions yeah, yeah. on posting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but either way, it, it was... You, you certainly couldn't segregate it to this is something that I want my friends to see, not my, you know, my coworkers or, you know, this is for family, not for friends. Yeah. That that wasn't really uh, it, at least not without kind of building your own groups in into it and using those groups as yeah. and, as kind of segregated uh, message. And Facebook, chambers. Facebook never implemented that. And so now we all hate each other. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> no, but it turned out that Google Plus, when it was actually used, it was not used as Facebook at all. It actually was used much more similar to the way Twitter was used. And so I think that Jacob's uh, suggestion here would have made sense had they known how uh, Google Plus would have actually been used in the real world. Yeah, they they were very much, uh, at least as I understand it, they were going after the Facebook market uh, to be a competitor there, um, and and that that clearly didn't work very well. Um, but 
yeah, it's, it sounds like perhaps if they'd taken a, a kind of a, an architecture model more similar to Twitter, that might have uh, given them a leg up there. Right. Um, which they, and they they did eventually address some of these issues, uh, but but as most uh, most stories involving Google Plus go, it was it was too little, too late. They did come out with um, what they referred to as communities and collections, where communities uh, are are. Pretty much this this channel approach that uh, that it sounds like Jacob was talking about, where uh, your 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 uh, community could be uh, dog lovers, and so anyone who is a, a dog lover can sign up to this this community, and people will post pictures of their dogs on there, uh, and and it's not you know there there are perhaps some some managers on there who who moderate the community, uh, but it's it's not a matter of only the people that I add to this particular circle get to see this message. It has potential for much wider broadcasting and for people to self-segregate uh, into those groups. Uh, and, and then there was also uh, collections, which are, um, when, when I was looking at the description earlier, I, I said it's, it's much more like a Pinterest board in that uh, a single person controls all the content there, but anybody can sign up to view it. Right. So that's that's sort of like what we're talking about here. But again, it also makes for a very complicated product, which is why these features don't get well known. I mean, think about it. You have collections, communities, circles. Essentially, all of these are just synonyms for collections that you're kind of expected to know. Um, I, I, As a someone who studies uh, consumer products, I mean, that's a red flag right there. This is going to be confusing as hell for anyone using it. Yeah, if, if you don't have clear terminology, it makes the barriers to entry much, much more difficult. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know what they could have done other than seeing the future, or I don't know if I want to say they shouldn't have tried at all. I, um, or in retrospect, they shouldn't have tried at all. I, I feel like that's not what I believe. Um, but like, if you if you listen to the the episode that we did, there's a lot of good stuff that that comes out of it, but. I don't know. I feel like they could have done a much better job if maybe they just had maybe they just had too many cooks or maybe they were chasing after uh, the Facebook whale without actually trying to say, well, what do we want to be? You know, I, I, I don't know what the problem is there. I'm hoping to talk to someone who worked at Google to give us an insight as to what the culture really is like in there. And I may get that into a, <laughs> a future episode. So we'll see. All right, Jacob, thank you for the email. Aaron, anything else before we part? No, I think that's a good place to end. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, again, if you have an email for the show, we'll read it and we'll we'll analyze it like we did this one. I always look forward to your emails. We have some more great guests coming up, uh, a lot of topics. Uh, no one I can mention just yet, but uh, but uh, hopefully soon. I guess I guess I, I hinted it enough. So for those of the United States, enjoy all your leftover turkey and, and stuffing and all that. And have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.